Hi, I'm Biz. And I'm Teresa. Due to the pandemic, we bring you One Bad Mother straight from our homes, including such interruptions as children, animal noises, and more. So let's all get a little closer while we have to be so far apart. And remember, we are doing a good job. This week on One Bad Mother, How Do You Raise an Anti-Racist Child? I talked to Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, the Andrew W. Mellon Professor in the Humanities at Boston University and the founding director of the BU Center for Anti-Racist Research. Plus, Biz is open for summer. Woo! Hey, Biz, this is a check-in. Hey! So it's Friday night. I order pizza because who even wants to cook on Fridays anymore? Not me. And we're waiting for the pizza, and I'm occupying my five-year-old, and she wants to play salon, which is fantastic. She never lets me touch her hair, and I really <laughs> just want to play with it. So we play salon, and then it's my turn, and then the doorbell <laughs> rings. And I had to answer the door and collect pizza from a, like, 17-year-old kid with not one, <laughs> not two, but seven bows in my hair. <laughs> Like big, bright, yeah. rainbowy Jojo Siwa bows. And this poor oh. kid had to keep a straight face while asking for money. And I'm so proud of him. <laughs> and you know what? I'm past the point of embarrassment because it's oh, Friday yeah. and I'm pouring some wine. Yeah. It's a great day. Hope you're having one too. <laughs> I love it. I think this is a new challenge for all of us. What state can we be in when we answer the door for the pizza delivery person or any delivery person? You know, could have been a weed delivery person. I wonder what that response would have been. I love this check-in. This is so symbolic of the general state of parenting in which there comes that time that we just stop caring about anything that has to do with self-dignity. I think that's a happy place to be. I think that is a freeing place. I got to it like an eighth grade. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever. If I want to look like the lead singer of The Cure, I will. What do you mean nobody wants to invite me to their party? <laughs> I just think you're doing a wonderful job. And uh, here are to more bows placed in all sorts of places. Speaking of doing a wonderful job, it is time for thank yous. Summer thank yous continue. I would like to say thank you to all of the people who work at camps, be they day camps, they overnight camps, science camps, math camps, chess camps, music camps, band camps. I don't know. There's a camp for everything, not gaming camps, whatever. You are doing an amazing job providing additional care for our kids over the summer. And it's not just the amazing counselors, and I know sometimes that's teens. Good job, teens. It's sometimes college students. Good job, college students. But it's also camp nurses. You are critical. Lifeguards, critical. There is a lifeguard shortage. This is all over the news right now. Let's not 
get distracted from the baby formula shortage, guys. <laughs> but that said, lifeguards, I understand that there are not enough of you this year. And so I appreciate those of you who are guarding lives, as well as, I mean, really, they're the people who are vending food at summer events, summer camps, running the, we used to call it the canteen, and all the people who cook food, deliver food, provide food at camps, as well as keep the facilities clean and safe because there is still a pandemic and therefore we still need things, (laughs) we always need things clean, guys. But you know what I'm about to say. It it is providing the spaces that our kids play in to be clean and safe. And again, shout out to all travel industry employees because summer and everybody thinks COVID's over. So we're all going to jump on a plane. Yay! So thank you people who work in the travel industry. Be you the people booking the tickets because we're never pleasant when we're trying to book travel, or the people who keep the planes, trains, buses clean and sanitized, same with the bathrooms at these different locations. And lastly, thank you, voter volunteers. I voted in my local elections this past Tuesday. I always like to go in person because I like talking to the volunteers. And I had a problem this time My address had gotten changed because my parents had forwarded their mail here for a little while when they got here. And suddenly my voter registration changed because they thought it was me who had moved, not my parents. And they helped me walk through this whole process and get it all straightened out so I could vote. And we had the new computerized electric voting machines. And I thought I'd followed all the directions and left. And they chased me out to the parking lot because I had not. And (laughs) like, so I really appreciate them. And I signed up to do future volunteers at polling centers. So thank you to all of you who do that. And now it's summer, 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 summer. And I am speaking of COVID not being over and just pretending like it is, my house is open once again to kids. It is, I have missed having just my kids and their friends running around the house. Not a lot of room for them, but we are cramming them in and they're outside on the porch. And it is just, I really like kids, guys. And none of them are little anymore. They're all like either tweens or third graders. Ellis is now officially a third grader. And those are all kids that can do things on their own. All I have to do is make sure there's food for them to eat and to occasionally do weird things that embarrass my children. And that, to me, is the perfect equation for summer. Uh, Yes, summer's going to be long. It's going to be hot. We're not going to have enough things to do. But I am happy to be that house. Being that house brings me great joy. It's just fun to see how this generation of kids sees the world, walks through the world. It's so different than when I was a kid in many ways. I mean, in some ways, it's still completely the same, okay? But Ellis 
pretended to make me pee-pee in my pants by putting my hand in a bowl of warm water, and I let Ellis and their friend think that they did. Because, again, we're that house. But in other ways, their discussions are so different when they look at things like gender and race and, you know, how to problem solve, basically how to walk through the world being better humans, which I think ties in nicely to what we're going to talk about today with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, whose latest book, How to Raise an Anti-Racist Child, is out now. Please take a moment to remember, if you're friends of the hosts of One Bad Mother, you should assume that when we talk about other moms, we're talking about you. If you are married to the host of One Bad Mother, we definitely are talking about you. Nothing we say constitutes professional parenting advice. Biz and Teresa's children are brilliant, lovely, and exceedingly extraordinary. Nothing said on this podcast about them implies otherwise. I am... Very excited to be talking to Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, who is the Andrew W. Mellon Professor in the Humanities at Boston University and is the founding director of the BU Center for Anti-Racist Research. He's a contributing writer at The Atlantic and a CBS News Racial Justice contributor. He is also the host of the new action podcast, Be Anti-Racist. Dr. Kendi is the author of many highly acclaimed books, including Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, which won the National Book Award for Nonfiction, making him the youngest ever winner of that award. He has also produced five straight number one New York Times bestsellers, including How to Be an anti-racist, anti-racist baby, and stamped racism, anti-racism, and you, co-authored by Jason Reynolds. In 2020, Time Magazine named Dr. Kendi one of the 100 most influential people in the world. He was also awarded a 2021 MacArthur Fellowship, popularly known as the Genius Grant. So no pressure here. Welcome, Dr. <laughs> Kendi. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> well, we are very happy to have you here. And before we get into your newest book, How to Raise an Anti-Racist, I want to ask what we ask all our guests, which is who lives in your house? <laughs> so I should probably start with my daughter, since she <laughs> we were just talking the other day about how she runs the show. Um, so my, my daughter, my six-year-old daughter, uh, her name is Imani. She's finishing up kindergarten, uh, and she's so excited that, that she is. <laughs> and then my my partner, Sadika, who, of course, is the, the love of, of, of my life. And also, she's a pediatrician, a pediatric ER doc. Uh, so she, she takes care of kids when they're in emergencies. I thought my job was hard. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's why uh, she's the real Dr. Kendi, and I'm just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, before we get, I got to ask, six years old, just got through with kindergarten, a legitimate question, how are you? <laughs> it was a long weekend. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm, I'm doing well. I, I think the older she, Imani, is getting, the, 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 the better she's able to sort of learn how to entertain herself. And I think being an only child, yes. I think she's doesn't necessarily have a, you know, sibling to, you know, to play with. But 
you know, I, I think, and she's she's becoming more and more independent, which uh, I think is, 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 is a beautiful. gift. It's a yeah. gift. As a parent, it's a gift. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> let's, don't, let's don't sugarcoat it. It is really nice when there is just like the few moments of the day where they are doing something that they don't need your help with. Exactly. The, the first time I went in and closed the door to their room, I was like, what's happening? This is the greatest thing that has ever happened in my life. All right, let's get into your newest book, How to Raise an Anti-Racist. There seems to be a theme of fear that is sort of an overarching idea that comes through in different ways. And it's everything from like, the fear of saying too much to your child about something, the fear of not having told them enough, our own fears that we put on top of them. You start with denial, like right at the beginning, and you explore these four predominant forms of racial socialization. And I I guess I want to start with denial, the happy place that that can be for so many of us, and a general description of the difference between trying to be anti-racist and trying to not be racist. And I, I realize I just asked you three very specific things that may or may not tie directly together. So you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's I think it's all related and 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 I think particularly as as parents and caregivers and you know and, and teachers there is a tremendous amount of fear about in, about the effects of talking to a child about race and racism. There's this perspective that many people have that I don't want to, quote, make my kid racist <laughs> like, by talking to them about race. I don't want mm -hmm. them to, quote, see color because we assume that they don't somehow see color. But then there are other parents who are like, you know what, I think it is important to talk to my kid about race and racism. I think it is important for my child, if they're a child of, of color, to know that there's nothing wrong with them because of their skin color. If my child is a white child, for them to know there's nothing special about them because of their skin color. They're special when they're nice or when they share, but, but there's nothing special or wrong with us because of our skin color. And so I think parents... There's some parents who want to engage their children, but they don't know how. And so they they fear saying the wrong thing in the wrong way. And I can relate to that because that's where I was at. Like, I yeah. wanted to do it, but I was scared about, like, how do you do this? And and I think part of it also for me was I had spent so much of my career engaging with adults. Well, that is the question. Right? Yeah, it's one way yeah. I know how to engage with an adult. But yeah. this is going to derail us right away. Again, you're welcome. When you suddenly became a caregiver, like, how did that impact questions that you had already been answering? How did that impact perspectives? I mean, what changed? What became new? Well, I, I think the, the biggest thing was my assumption was that since it's so hard to talk to adults and to have a productive conversation about race and racism with adults, it must be even harder to have it with kids. <laughs> and what actually I found was actually, it's actually much easier to have it with kids. <laughs> right. right. And so 
you know, that went out the door. <laughs> they don't have 40 years of baggage exactly. <laughs> with them exactly. or, yeah. And that's precisely what I realized. But then I then started, you know, as a scholar sort of studying the history of, of racial attitudes, you know, of, of children and the different developmental levels of children, particularly how children see or understand race and racism at different ages and how we're supposed to be responding. And one of the through lines that scholars have been saying really for 100 years is that it's actually protective for our children to engage them and talk to them about race, which was counterintuitive for me. Because I thought I was like, particularly as a parent of a black child, I was like, I want to keep them as far away from this as possible. Yeah. But I didn't realize, you know what, if if I don't actively teach my daughter that her skin color is beautiful, other people are going to tell her her skin color is ugly. Yeah. And but if she hears it from me first, that there's nothing wrong with her skin color. Exactly. (laughs) Right. Exactly. You talk about this in the book, this this thing, this idea of all the things you had learned versus what you didn't know yet, this knowing, right? Like you take your child to preschool on the first day, and one of the lenses that you see is through all of these things you've learned. You know statistically how this could play out. You know the difficulties that schools face and that caregivers face and these environments. And then as you leave, you were like, oh, wait, this might be even more than that. This might be based on my school, like what my experiences were like. How can one go about separating those things, if they should even be separated? How do you navigate that as a parent? Well, let me just say, I I think I did not realize all of those connections until I actually wrote this book. <laughs> and, and so in many ways, it was therapeutic, you know, mm-hmm. in, in that sense. And, and I think what we're talking about here is I sort of had the privilege of bringing my daughter to her first day of what she called big school. Yeah, big school, big school. <laughs> uh, preschool, you know, at a larger school, which had, you know, upper grades. And I was like, I literally, <laughs> after I sort of, she went into the classroom and, and got settled, I was in the door frame and I didn't yeah. want to leave. Yeah. And I was sort of scared to leave. And I didn't realize until sort of reflecting on my own personal story and even interviewing my, my parents yeah. that my brother's first day of school my mother actually yes. stood in the door frame. She did. She did uh, more than stay in. She yes. followed a school bus that <laughs> exactly, was taking I mean. your brother <laughs> to school, like thirty minutes away. She just got in that car. I was like, "This is the greatest woman I've ever <laughs> known." She got in a car. Everybody followed that bus and then went in to watch. I. Yeah. But anyway, go ahead. No, that's 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 her. I mean, and and so so then. When I attended my first big school and I had my first teacher, we think started sending home letters because I was misbehaving and she thought that I was misbehaving because I was black. And so there was this sort of fear of of sending my child, you know, into a dangerous place where she could be affected because she was black. 
But as I stood in the doorframe, I convinced myself <laughs> that everything would be okay. Right. right. The so convincing. I could leave. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And and you know, I think the similar case for 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 white parents, particularly now, is, you know, I, I suspect there are many white parents who just convinced themselves, even though my child, my 13-year-old or 14-year-old white teenage male is playing multiplayer video games all the time or is on social media all the time or is on these messaging apps all the time. There's no white supremacists who are lurking in those places, targeting them, indoctrinating them. It's going to be okay. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Well, there is. I mean, look, who doesn't want to live in that world? That's a comfy world for all of us, right? Like whether it's everything's going to be fine. Recently, my oldest seventh and eighth grade class went on a camping trip. Mm-hmm. And we get this email from the school. And my kid had already filled me in saying that there had been an incident, that there had been students that were making racist, sexist, anti Semitic, and ableist comments, usually disguised as a joke. And what I found more stunning than that. We go to like this progressive school, Southern California. Everybody is very positive of how, 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 how good we are. Okay. We've really (laughs) kind of done some work. (laughs) Anyway, there was a lot of pearl clutching that, Mm. that there had even been racist jokes told by seventh graders. Right. And I, I thought, what is the harm in starting from a place of it's going to happen? It already exists. And I think part of what you're speaking to is the fear and the shame. And so yeah. what happens is if if you, let's say, if a, a you know, a, a, a white child does indeed yeah. consume some of these white supremacist memes and, and starts repeating them among mm-hmm. their friends, and the parent of that child hears about it, that parent almost feels ashamed, yeah. you know, that this, that says something about me <laughs> as a that, parent. Yes, that is, I will readily admit, it's one of my number one fears is that my yeah. kid is going to be the one using some, like though we've worked so hard and it's been part of our conversations. So I'm from the deep South. I come, yeah. I know who my people are. They were not yeah. great. <laughs> and so that shame is, that is a real place. And, and I, I think what I'm trying to convey in, in How to Raise yeah. in Anti-Racist, and even comparing this to, you know, a, a parent, you know, of, of, a, of an Asian yeah. child who comes home and says, I don't like the shape of my eyes. Or the parent of a, of a Black child who comes home and says, I want blue eyes. You know, those parents also feel a sense of shame that they've done something wrong. But what if instead of us thinking we did something wrong, going back to your point, we recognize that our kids are being raised in a particular environment <laughs> where these types of ideas <laughs> are, are right and yeah. are rampant. And so the question for us as parents isn't whether our kids are going to be attracted or impacted right. by these ideas. The question is how we're going to protect our kids from them. And even the posture of like, we understand as parents, we have to teach our kid to look both ways when they're crossing the street. We just don't assume, oh, you can just cross the street. You'll never get hit. 
<laughs> no, we actually consciously realize, no, this is a dangerous intersection. Just like we're living in a dangerously racist society, so we need to protect our kids from it. Being a parent in general is yeah. the first place you're gonna feel like shit for whatever you're doing. And you're gonna think everybody's judging you, or even better, you get to start judging yourself. Exactly. You think everybody cares when you're failing, and you realize no one cares when you're nailing it, when you're doing a great job. So there's isolation, there's the feeling like you're the only one. These are, these are things that are a parent's current narrative. And that's just, that's just the general, the, the blank checklist kind. That doesn't go into yeah. the additional weights and burdens of uh, systemic racism, systemic sexism, systemic, any of these things. And you talk to me about more ways that we can help. You, you use the phrase childproofing mm -hmm. when it comes to racial harm. Can you talk to me about ways that we as parents can, our caregivers can engage in this? How do we make it so that we've got the skills to do this and I'm guessing part of it is looking at ourselves. <laughs> well, so I think, well, first let's just talk about the, the accommodations part. So okay. I think that was a story in which my daughter, when we would arrive at school, she would run up the ramp and she loved the ramp and yeah. she talked about how much she loved the ramp. And I use that as an example to say that there are certain things that our kids love or see, and we know they're, they're seeing because they're talking about it. And in those types of cases, it gives us the opportunity to talk about it. So they're in a way opening the door to a conversation and we have to basically be willing to walk into that door, no matter what the child says. So, you know, if we're, you know, if a child sort of asks, even if they use racial language, let's say you, you typically are uh, driving by, you know, a prison and your child sees that the overwhelming majority of those prisoners are, are black and brown and you pass that every day and your child can see that. Yeah. yeah. By three, <laughs> you yeah. know, we can deny it, but studies show that by three years old, our kids have an adult-like conception of race. Yeah. And so they're seeing color as we understand it. They're seeing race. The question is, what are they attaching to those different colors? And so let's say if one day your child is like, mommy, why are so many of those people black or brown? That's essentially giving us the opportunity to talk to them about racism, right? But oftentimes parents say, don't say that, <laughs> right? right? And so they shut down those conversations. The other thing is we can bring our child into situations in which they're gonna ask questions. So I'm, I'm mentioning this because particularly as our children get older, four or five, you know, and up, we want them to really ask the questions so that they can spark the conversation. But I think in, in a larger sense, in terms of child-proofing our environment for our children, I don't think, and I didn't realize this until I sort of really did a deep dive on the research for this book, yeah. that for, particularly for younger children, so much of their racial attitudes has to do with what scholars call nonverbal language. 
So we as parents think that we have a choice as to whether we're going to talk to our kids about race. <laughs> choice? We don't, what? Yeah. <laughs> and so parents are like, I don't want, I don't feel like talking to my kids about race. What those parents don't understand is you're actually talking to your kids about race without saying anything. Mm-hmm. For instance, if your child sees that ever, if you're, you know, a white parent with a white child in Every single person that comes to your house in a friendship capacity is right. white. You're actually speaking to your child about who you value. If you're you're walking with your child down the street and, and, a, and a black man approaches and your child sees you get scared, you're talking to your kid about black people are dangerous, even though you didn't say anything. Right. Right. And actually. And so. That's what one of the things that that scholars are consistently showing our nonverbal language is incredibly important. If, you know, your child opens up their library and everyone on the shelf in terms of the people are a particular skin color, you're telling your child who you value. Right. And so I I think it's important for us to ensure we're we're child proofing our home, (laughs) our, our environment our nonverbal language to ensure we're conveying to our children, you know, that the racial groups are equals. Yes, I, that's not hard. That's the part that's not hard. Sometimes that's the part that like, at least we live in a time where those opportunities are available to us because, because there are more authors, more television creators, more, you know, music choices that we can introduce as well as, you know, the choices we make when it comes to where we live, you know, who we're near, where we take. We were just talking about this just the other week with a friend on the show about going to different restaurants in different neighborhoods. You know, it's just, it's just food. Food is a great place to start, (laughs) right? But I think the part that can trip people up is you say create the environments for the questions to be asked it's the answering the questions that can be really tricky they can be really tricky and i i think because it it can trigger so much in ourselves and our own experiences or like you say i don't i don't want to terrify my kids right i don't want to scare them to think that everything is a danger but like you say, the studies show we're protecting them more by talking about it. So what, what's really great is you go from newborn all the way up to high school. And that the high school is terrifying. It's a terrifying place to be. I used to think teens were very funny. Now I'm not sure I think teens are funny <laughs> <laughs> anymore. Can you talk about some ways that caregivers with our older kids can can answer some of those hard questions because the problem is is when they get to a certain age they sometimes stop asking and they don't even Mm want to talk to you anymore specifically as it relates to race Mm -hmm. between according to to studies between seven and ten years old kids are being taught by caregivers to not talk about race So scholars call it sort of this external motivation to not talk about race. According to scholars, by 10 years old, they're internally motivated. So they have been taught for years to not talk about it. 
And so by 10, they're not talking about it because they think that's the right thing to do because their parents have been saying for so long, you know, to not do it. So I'm mentioning this because during this period, particularly from six to 10 years old, that's when our kids start having the cognitive ability to talk specifically about race uh, in a very direct way. And it is in that time in which we have to be extremely open to those conversations so that by 10 years old, they're continuing to ask those questions. But I think in a, if we even talk, take this off of race and, and our child, when they're 15 or 18 or 12, you know, ask us a difficult question about right. animals or about, you know, Japan or about <laughs> paper. Right. If we don't know the answer, hopefully what we'll seek to do is let's figure it out together. Mm. Right. Let's find a book and, and read up on it. Let's search that, you know, on the Internet together. Let's let's learn that together. We have that capacity. And, and I mentioned one time in, in, in the book about how I needed to slow my life down. Mm, yeah. <laughs> right? And I think actually it was in the case of the accommodations example. Yeah. Like, you know, it, w- w- as parents, we have so much, you know, on our plate. There's so many different things going on. And so sometimes we don't think we have the time to sit with our kid to figure out an answer. But part of the reason why that's important is not just because we should be seeking to <laughs> to answer that question for our children, but also we have to create a critical thinking home. We, we, we have to create a home where we encourage and model first saying when we don't know, and then going about the process of investigating, you know, and discovering. Developing those critical thinking skills, according to scholars, are also protective, you know, for children, because critical thinking is the opposite, you know, of, of racist thinking. I derailed us from one of my very first questions. So I'd like to bring us back to talking about the difference between trying to be anti-racist and trying to not be (laughs) racist. So this is something that I think it's important for us to understand the larger context. Yeah. When do people typically say, they are not racist. They typically say... <laughs> right after they tell a horrible joke. <laughs> exactly. They tell a racist joke. They support a racist sort of law. They express right. a racist idea. And then somebody calls them on it. Some of my friends and, are black. They say things yeah. like that. <laughs> and then they say they're not racist. And then they go about proving it by saying, right. you know, who they're associated with right. or what their political party is or where they live. That's you right. Know, I'm mentioning this because really the sound of denial mm. is, is I'm not racist. And so one of the things I've, I've sought to do with my work yeah. is for people to understand that the opposite of racist isn't not racist, <laughs> that to be racist is to say I'm not racist. Right. <laughs> the opposite uh, of racist is anti-racist. So the question is, are we expressing an idea of racial hierarchy as a racist or equality as an anti-racist? Are we supporting a policy that is leading to equity for all racial groups as an anti-racist or supporting a policy that's leading to inequity, you know, as a racist. That's what I've been trying to encourage people to realize. And then as it relates to our children, are we encouraging them to see equality, to support equity and justice or not? That's the question. I think that that language is incredibly helpful because we are taught, you know, not only have 
we've been taught or surrounded culturally by this idea that, you know, of colorblindness or Mm -hmm. not talking about it means it's fine. (laughs) Or saying I'm not racist. These are the, the tools that I think the language that a good generation of us grew up around to sort of hold on to versus anti-racism, which allows for action and discussion while saying I'm not racist just shuts everything down. And if I could just add one other quick thing. The term I'm not racist (laughs) is an identity well, and yeah. most people have been taught that the term racist is an identity. Right. And people think that this is who you are. So a person says something that's racist. Another person calls them out. They think that person is saying you are essentially a racist. So then their response is, no, I'm essentially not racist. One of, one of the things I've tried to do with my work is to say that racist and anti-racist are descriptive terms. Mm. What what that means is they're almost like peelable name tags. So they describe what a person is being in any given moment based on what they're saying or doing with the recognition that one moment we could be anti-racist, the next moment we could be racist, the next moment we can be anti-racist. And it accounts for the complexity of humans, (laughs) but it also gives us the capacity to grow, Mm. you know, and change and to be better. With all of the work that you've done, where do you see us headed is an unfair question to ask you, <laughs> I feel. I, I think that, and I think you mentioned this earlier, there are more tools mm. now, now. That, that, that parents have to raise their child to be anti-racist than they did 50 years ago, even 20 years ago. You know, whether it's the tools that allow you to diversify the toolbox, the media, sort of the, the sort of books, whether it's the, the, the recognition of teachers uh, who are being trained in anti-racism, whether it's, you know, the tools that, that parents have, you know, about this specific subject. And there's a, a, a large body of people who are committed to creating an equitable sort of society, just as there's a large body of people who (laughs) are opposed to that, you know, society. And so I I do think that we should sort of recognize that. But in terms of sort of the larger picture, you know, in in 2020, which seems like it was 30 years ago. Right. (laughs) um, But, you know, in in 2020, in the summer of 2020, 76% of Americans were, were polled as saying that racism exists and is a huge problem. That was the highest percentage I've ever seen, you know, in American history. Yeah. And so you 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 know, that number sort of started to come down with the backlash, but but still that was a, a huge sort of number. And many of those people were actually starting to think, okay, you know what, I'm learning and starting to understand that that racism is a problem. But I also want my child to learn this, too. And how do I sort of engage with my child, you know, on these topics that I'm learning? You know, I'm 40 years old or 35 or 25 or 60, and I'm just now learning 
that I've held racist ideas. I don't want my child to wait until they're 40. (laughs) You know, I want them to learn this sort of early. And and so how do I start that process? And many people started that process. And many of those people even encouraged me to write How to Raise an Anti-Racist. Well, it couldn't be coming out at a better time. (laughs) And I think just the idea, this concept of anti-racism is in itself a new tool that for all who woke up a little more and are ready to do the work and the exploration, I think it's a tool that they can use that is more productive. It is. For themselves. So that is to say, I appreciate the work that you have put out in the world. It is a gift. At the end of this book, you talk about wanting to protect your child, but acknowledging some of the responsibility that protecting her is protecting all kids. And that having the, and that's a, that's a big deal to take on. Uh, So thank you for doing that. (laughs) And thank you so much for writing this new book. This is going to be a real gift for a lot of, of parents who are trying to navigate it trying to navigate being a caregiver in this world. So thank you so much. I want to make sure that everybody will have a chance to find the podcast because, again, it's about actions and it's about more regarding anti-racism. Just thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, well, thank you so much, you know, as always, and for giving us the ability to speak about this in such a candid sort of manner. And, oh, and, and we indeed, can get way more candid if you want to. <laughs> I'm happy okay. to step in it all the time. I do. <laughs> no, but, but I, and, and one thing I, I actually, that you mentioned earlier that I thought was important is that as a parent, I want to be very clear about the type of person that I want my my child to be. Right. So it's one thing for me to say, to teach a child to, to quote, yeah. not be mean. Right. It's another thing right. right, to teach a child to be nice. And so how do we go about teaching a child to be nice? And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm excited about, you know, how to raise an anti-race, because it's an affirmative sort of part of the toolbox about yeah. a productive, constructive way in which we can raise our children. Well, there, I see we're going to derail again. There is Sorry. the <laughs> equality of action versus equity of action, which I found to be an incredibly insightful chapter on empathy. It also terrified me as I learned more and more about empathy and it triggered some of my fears that we are not living in the most empathetic of times. We're not. We're not. But I thought that that clarity of equality of action versus equity of action, which we are going to have to force everybody to go read about, because (laughs) I know that Dr. Kendi's got a hard out, and otherwise I'd keep him here for two more hours. (laughs) But I just want you to know how much I appreciate, again, you coming on the show, being willing to be candid with me. And again, We'll make sure everybody everybody knows how to find a book, but we'll make sure <laughs> that we specifically make it easy for you to get this one. Thank you again, Dr. Kendi, for all of your work. Thank you. Thank you for your work. Mm, you are doing a very good job. 
One Bad Mother is supported in part by HelloFresh. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit, and you can get farm-fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Dinner, dinner, dinner. We all hate making it. (laughs) But HelloFresh makes this so easy. They're great to set up at different times during the week. So for example, I don't need it every single night, but it's great to have it like on a Tuesday and a Thursday and Friday night when I don't want to cook because I know I've got a million errands and summer camps that I have to deal with during the day. Go to HelloFresh.com slash BadMother16 and use code BadMother16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That's HelloFresh.com slash BadMother16 and code BadMother16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. One Bad Mother is supported in part by Dipsy. Whether it's a warm cup of coffee, basking in warm sunlight, or listening to a sexy story, pleasure is all around us. With Dipsy, escape into a world where, say it with me, pleasure is your only priority. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. I enjoy Dipsy. I do. It's my second year of having the Dipsy app, and it is really helpful when I am looking for a little me time. Yep, I said that. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash badmother. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash badmother. Dipsystories.com slash badmother. Hey, you know what it's time for this week's Genius and Fails. This is the part of the show where we share our genius moment of the week, as well as our failures, and feel better about ourselves by hearing yours. You can share some of your own by calling 206-350-9485. That's 206-350-9485. Genius fail time. Genius me me. Wow. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I saw what you did. Oh, my God. I'm paying attention. Wow. You, Mom, are a genius. Oh, my God. That's fucking genius. Okay. I roller skated. Remember? I bought roller skate. I asked for roller skates for Christmas, and they were really cool. Uh, they were cool skates, and I really wanted to do it. Something inside of me had said, you need to be roller skating. And then I got old and embarrassed and they sat in my car. They were in the trunk of my car so that at any moment I could roller skate. So as I've mentioned, I go out and I walk the Rose Bowl, which is this big three mile loop. And they always have these big parking lots that are empty because there's no football game going on or event. And I, over the last several months, have seen one or two people practicing roller skating. I saw one young woman 
practicing roller skating. And then I saw an older guy practicing skateboarding on another day. And then on another day, I saw two teens and their mom, and the two teens were on skates, and I had to stop and speak to them. And I said, these are signs. They, <laughs> this is the universe telling me I need to put these roller skates on. So I did. And so now in this last week, I go and I only walk like 30 minutes. And then I go back and I get my skates on and I practice skating. And guys, it was fun. It was fun. It was fun. <laughs> Hi. This Hi. is a <laughs> And I waited until it was all over until I called you because, God forbid, I call it a genius before anything actually happens. Mm. I've been trying to get a massage for the last six months, and every time I have an appointment booked, either my kids get sick or daycare's closed for a COVID exposure. You know, it's just like anything that can go wrong has gone wrong every time I've tried to schedule this appointment. Uh, I went today, and my kids are both in daycare, and I got a 90-minute massage that was amazing. And then after that, I went and got my hair cut. For the first time in 12 weeks, which that doesn't sound like a long time, but I have, like, short curly hair, so I needed it. And holy shit. Hmm. And I still have a little bit of time before I have to go pick up my kids. And I don't know what I'm going to do, and I don't care. I'm going to call and tell you what a genius it is that I actually was able to get my massage today. So I hope you all are having a wonderful day. Or, yeah, thanks, Fizz. <laughs> Bye. Thank you. Good job. I okay. The genius was waiting. By the way, that is the the genius. And this is I, we get a lot of calls of people with their geniuses of going and getting a massage or going and getting a hair appointment. I don't play it all the time, but just because we get a lot of them, and you know, sometimes sometimes I'm looking for something like you know how to open a pickle jar, right, while you have two babies in your arms. But I felt this was important to play because it's such a good reminder of why those massages or why those special appointments we make for ourselves are important because they're next to impossible to do. It's next to impossible. You schedule it and then a kid gets sick. You schedule it and then the school closes. You schedule it, and maybe your partner's schedule changes, and now you have to take on responsibilities that day, and you have to change your plans. There are any number of reasons why we cannot schedule an appointment and keep it. And the ones that we let go of first are the ones that are about self-care. It's not the doctor's appointments. It's not the, like, I don't know, kids' appointments or what. We always cancel the massages. So good job not canceling this time. Good job waiting to make sure you didn't have to cancel it, calling it in, and just also getting the hair done, all set, all of it. You're amazing, and you deserve that. You are doing a great job. Failures. Fail. You suck. Okay, the, just a, the, just a reminder of a long-standing fail. I, I think when one does a show like this and has to share fails every single week for 10 years, <laughs> it provides the opportunity 
to really see how a fail starts and manifests itself and sometimes continues. So yesterday, I am sitting with Ellis and Stefan, and we are talking about Raiden, who is going into eighth grade. They're about to have a big birthday, and we're just discussing the idea. Raiden is the only, only kid in the world without a phone, okay? And they seem to have survived and functioned beautifully. But we were beginning the discussion of a phone, and Ellis says you should, and, and, and just so you know, that's in the background. Separately, I'm joking about Raiden not needing a phone. And Ellis says, Raiden needs a phone. You have to get Raiden a phone. And I was like, even if we were going to do that, Ellis, we would never tell you. And Ellis was like, why? Because you can't keep a secret. You would tell, I didn't say you can't keep a secret. I just said, you would tell Raiden that we were going to be getting them a phone. You would just tell them immediately. That is how that works. That is, it's too big a news. And Ellis is like, I can't keep a secret. I was like, uh-huh. And he goes, I can keep a secret, just like the secret I've kept about my toes. And then there's a really big pause. And I'm, and, oh, I forgot to mention, my mother is there sitting on the couch and she breaks out into hysterical laughter because if we all remember, Ellis won't show us their feet. They won't. And it's been multiple years. <laughs> and I said, Ellis, I just, I just, can we ask you questions about the feet now that you've reminded us about your feet? We only have the one question. Are your feet healthy? The answer is yes. But God, I want to know what's going on with those feet. I really do. I really do. And I know I could go rip that sock off whenever I want and emotionally scar Ellis for life. But instead, we're just going to let this continue. <laughs> Anywho, I guess the end result is that Ellis can, in fact, keep a secret. Hi, I think this is a fail. I called earlier with a check-in. I was excited because I was alone and I had a kid who was sick a couple days ago and I had decided that I wasn't going to send him and then at the last minute I talked to the preschool people and they were like, oh, he'll be fine. So I sent him. He was a little clingy, but otherwise pretty much good. Oh, they just sent me a message that he has a temperature and I need to go get him. So damn it. Um, yeah, I need to show up with, like, a bag over my head because I feel so ashamed that I sent a sick kid to school when I wasn't going to, and then I did because I really wanted alone time. So, damn it. I got some alone time, but now I feel like shit because I sent a sick kid to school. So, yeah, that's fun. That's good. So me. I know I'm supposed to be doing a great job, but that didn't feel so great. Yeah, you failed. And here's what's great. Unlike, unlike our last caller with the genius who waited to confirm that it was genius. Everybody, if you listened to last week's episode, this was our check-in caller, who we all celebrated doing such a good job <laughs> sending the kids into school so that they could have some alone time. I really felt we all needed to be part of this fail with you because this is... This is reality. 
everyone. This is celebrating a win before the win is confirmed. And yeah, you did have alone time, but it's tainted. Tainted self-care is what you got. Well, you failed. You failed at self-care. You failed at bragging about self-care. And you failed at enjoying this small bit of self-care that you did get. Good job! (laughs) You are the greatest mom I've ever known. I love you, I love you. When I have a problem, I call you on the phone. Hey, it's John Moe. Join me on Depression Mode for conversations on how mental health shapes our life. This week, David Sedaris with stories of his late father that he's finally willing to tell. I think there's a difference between, you know, a good person and a good character. Like, he was a good character, my boyfriend here. My father was another one of those people. He was a really good character, but he, he, he wasn't a good person. Depression Mode with John Moe, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jesse Thorne, the founder of Maximum Fun, and I have a special announcement. I'm no longer embarrassed by my brother, my brother, and me. You know, for years, each new episode of this supposed advice show was a fresh insult, a depraved jumble of erection jokes, ghost humor, and Frankly, this is for the best, very little actionable advice. But now, as they enter their twilight years, I'm as surprised as anyone to admit that it's gotten kind of good. Justin, Travis, and Griffin's witticisms are more refined, like a humor column in a fancy magazine. And they hardly ever say bazinga anymore. So, after you've completely finished listening to every single one of all of our other shows, why not join the McElroy brothers every week? For my brother, my brother, and me. All right, everybody, it is time to listen to a mom have a breakdown. Hi, one bad mother. This is a rant or event, I guess. A rant, yes. I just, my almost three year old is just off the chain. She's like a feral cat, monkey, animal, like just insane. And like, I just feel totally defeated by her. And I'm like that yelling mother that I never wanted to be. My mom always yelled at us when we were little, and I'm one of three. And we always would, like, laugh at the fact that she was yelling at us. And, like, now I get it because I was fucking frustrated. And, like, I feel like I just can't keep up. I have a three-year-old and a seven-month-old that won't take a bottle. So she's constantly on me, still, like, literally attached to me. And I love her so much. I love them both so much. It just... I'm feeling really, really, really guilty because um, my three-year-old goes to school, and when I know it's time to go pick her up, I just get anxious, and I know that it's going to suck, and that she's going to be so bad, and it's just hell all the way until 8 o'clock at night. Try to put her to bed early, and it's just a fight, and she has, like, this crazy routine that only I'm allowed to do with her, and she yells at her dad, no, daddy, go away. You are not my best friend. I only want mama. And I'm like, oh, my God. I love that you love me, honey, but please let daddy help. 
so poor dad. I actually, um, we, I tried a babysitter too. And she would abuse the babysitter. She'd be like, you're not my friend. Go away. Do not touch baby sister. And I had to like tell the babysitter not to come. So it made it worse. I just feel so defeated right now. And then in the mornings, trying to get her out the door to go to school, it's just like, get her out. Like, she's just like, just a nightmare, just a total nightmare. And I'm just praying, please don't let three be worse than two. Like, I just feel like it is. It's, it's coming, and it's just so hard. And I just don't feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And, like, I'm exhausted all the time. The seven-month-old still doesn't sleep through the night. And I just feel like when I met the other mom, like, it's just like, oh, well, I, my baby doesn't do that. Or, like, oh, I'm so sorry you're having such a hard time. Like, why am I the only one that my three-year-old is fucking mad? Like, I just keep thinking that there's something I am doing to make her act like this. She's so hard to, like, be around. And I love her so much. I just want to hug on her and love her all the time. She's so just three or two, whatever. I'm just, just really struggling. And I love your show because it just it just puts me in a place that I know I'm not alone. And I just, I don't know. I'm just having a hard time today. But thank you for your show. And thanks for letting me back. That's it. First of all, you're doing an amazing job. You're doing such a good job. And you are absolutely not alone. This is, it really takes me back to when Ellis was a baby and a toddler and sometimes still that feeling of defeat is so real. And you know, I, I, I really just want to spend this time telling you over and over again that you're amazing, that you're doing a good job, you're a good parent. It is obvious that you love your children. And I need to say that the guilt that we can feel when we don't like our kids sometimes, or when we are feeling defeated, makes that feeling of being defeated so much worse. You you have no autonomy right now. Let's just say it. <laughs> Let's just say it out loud. And it's okay. It's not okay, but it's also not your fault. It, you didn't do anything. Ellis wouldn't take a bottle. So I had to always uh, feed them uh, with my body, and I hated it. I didn't like it. I'm not a, I wasn't a fan. I wasn't one of those people who was like, this is the best feeling in the world. Uh, I have shared on the show multiple times, and I'll share it again. I felt like I was being held prisoner, uh, that I was being held captive, by my by my infant. Now, that is a fucked up way to think, but I couldn't go anywhere, you know? And just like you, it had to be me or no one. And just like you, it didn't mean I didn't try 
to make it be other people, right? I mean, there would be days I'd be sitting on the porch listening to my child scream bloody murder because it was Stefan putting him down, right? I paid my babysitter well because I knew I was leaving her with a kid who was going to be awful, okay? And that on top of having a seven-month-old, like you, you have two people taking from you right now. You have a seven-month-old physically taking from you, and you have got a two-year-old, almost three-year-old uh, emotionally taking from you. And that's fucking exhausting. And it's not fair. And it doesn't feel good. And it can make you feel like a bad parent or a bad person because you hate it. <laughs> None of this means that you don't love those kids. But as we say on this show, both can exist. Okay, and it can feel overwhelming, but you are not alone. You are not alone because I am a person who has been there. And thanks to the One Bed Mother community, people who had been there before me shared with me. Okay, you're not alone. No, it is not just your kids. No, it is not something you are doing. If you can wake up and get your kids through the day and then go back to bed, you have done enough because that it, you're in an impossible place right now and you're very limited. And yes, there are some people out there who make it look really easy and maybe it's because it's really easy. <laughs> it's not easy for all of us because everybody's kid is different and we're all different right? The, the assumption that suddenly we're like, I'm now a great parent and know everything because there's a kid in my house. <laughs> it's, like, it's just such a fucked up assumption and usually placed more on the women in the house. Oh, you know how to do this. <laughs> we don't. So I will spend the next few moments just saying to you, I see you, I hear you, you are doing a remarkable job, you really are, you are doing a great job, you are doing a great job. Guys, oh, this is all really hard, <laughs> I, I, before we reflect like on the whole show and all the amazing things that we talked about with Dr. Kendi, it, I think about our rant caller and how, like, how much emotion there was throughout the call. And at the end, she's like, you can hear her, pull it together. You can hear her like, you know, maybe it's just today. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> what is that notion in us that, like, when it's all too much, we get permission to like vomit it for like two minutes and then it's okay. It's probably just me. <laughs> it's not just you. It's everybody. Okay. To some degree. I'm so appreciative of this community because really the heart of it is reminding each other that we're, we're not alone as well as reminding each other 
that we've got each other's back as we try to navigate raising kids and dealing with our own baggage and biases that we bring to it. No one just, again, no one wakes up with a kid in their house and suddenly has like dealt with everything that preceded that. (laughs) And one of the things I liked about talking with Dr. Kendi about is just this idea that this is a process. It's not a one-two step when it comes to raising our kids to be anti-racist or kind or anti-sexist or like, I mean, all the things that we fear our kids might be. No one wants their kid to be that asshole, right? Like no one wants that. But this notion that there's like one thing we can do and snap, it's over, that takes a lot of pressure off knowing that this is a multi-step, lifelong journey and that it's about working hard to recognize and take action on the things that we want to see changed in our world and for our kids. So again, I highly recommend everybody gets pretty much anything that Dr. Kendi has written. He also just has this beautiful baby book that's like, I think it's called Goodnight Racism. I just got it in the mail. It's so sweet. And like, there's also the anti-racist baby. And like, I, I, he's, he is a gift and his work is a gift. And all of those people out there who are working on this, I just, thank you. And you're all doing a really great job. All of you are. And I'll talk to you next week. Bye. I got to low down mama blues. I got to low down mama blues. Got to low down mama blues. Low down mama blues. Got to low down mama blues. Got to low down mama blues. You know that right. We'd like to thank Max Fun, our producer, Gabe Mara, our husbands, Stephen Lawrence and Jesse Thorne, our perfect children who provide us with inspiration to say all these horrible things, and of course, you, our listeners. To find out more about the songs you heard on today's podcast and more about the show, please go to MaximumFun.org slash OneBadMother. For information about live shows, our book, and press, please check out OneBadMotherPodcast.com. One Bad Mother is a member of the Maximum Fun family of podcasts. To support the show, go to MaximumFun.org slash join. Well, daddy, baby, bustin' by, got thrown down mama blues. Oh, said daddy, baby, bustin' by, got thrown down mama blues. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.